The desire of Titus Women is to invite women around the world to know Jesus as their Savior, Center, and Source. May God guide and encourage you through this message by Betty Krause. I wish I could sit at each one of your tables and listen to your stories, the journey that you have had with Jesus and are continuing to have with Him. Um, one time, I, I have ten grandchildren. Um, they are growing up now and getting married, and I actually, well, I should say, I have 13, or 12 and a half because there's a wedding next month. So uh, I'm, I have the potential of having tw 20 now if they all get married before I pass away, and um, I'm working on that. I'm not passing away, but <laughs> we're off to a great start, I can tell. Um, I, I had, uh, it was after JB and I returned from Korea, we had lived there 34 years and came back to, uh, for JB to be president of, of OMS, now One Vision Society. And so I was in, I was, we were living in Greenwood and uh, actually we tried to get them to have headquarters in Korea so we could just stay there, but they decided to stay where they are in Indiana. And I didn't know much about Indiana. And uh, somebody said, are you looking forward to living there? And I said, well, I've asked, I'm praying uh, that we'll have a house on a mountain near a lake. <laughs> <laughs> You've been there. <laughs> and they, people who just started laughing, and I said, what's the matter? And they said, well, next time you better increase your prayer and pray for how high and how deep. <laughs> the mountains there are like anthills, if there are any, maybe Brown County. And we lived next to, well, I, I think it was about 10 inches deep, and the bullfrog sounded like cows. <laughs> we had a guest one night, and actually um, uh, Bruce Wilkinson, and he said, when he came to breakfast, he said, where do the cows, where are the cows? <laughs> I said, we don't have any cows. It was the bullfrogs that we thought were keeping him awake. Anyway, thought there were cows. Uh, back to where we're going. Uh, I was taking care of, or going to take care of, two of our grandsons. Their, their mother was on night duty, and so I went down to the house, and she said, because I was going to do it for a week, special duty that she had, and she set up a bed in the room where the crib was. Uh, one of the little boys was four, and the other was in a crib. I forget how many months old. And so we were doing that, and then she left, and the four-year-old, James, came over, and he'd been walking around the room, looked at the bed, looked at the crib, and he said, Grandma, are you going to stay here, sleep here? And I said, yes. And he looked at me, and he said, I'm all alone across the hall. <laughs> and so he kind of walked sadly over to the bed and looked at it and patted it and then his four-year-old theology kicked in <laughs> and he came back and stood right in front of me until I looked right straight in his eyes and he said grandma I know God is over there too but God doesn't scratch my back <laughs> we need each other don't we we really do, and God knows about that. And um, I don't know if you've had the experience of inviting women to your home. Many of you have, I know. Or you've all been invited to someone's home, and you look forward to it so much. Sue, who just prayed, had invited neighbors that she she would see them walking their dogs that she really didn't know. Some of them, or most, the ones that she invited, she didn't know very well, didn't know their spiritual condition, and wanted to get to know them. So. She had, she invited them. And she was so excited, she said, every one of them said yes. <laughs> and they came in so excited. And by the time that, that luncheon was over, they were chatting together as if they had always been friends. It was a beautiful experience. And they, there was an opportunity for them to express in, in various ways their, their walk with the Lord or not. So. Um, it was a, a beautiful time together. And I want, I want to just say right off the bat, this table we fixed up, you know, a little bit fancier. And sometimes we do that. Some of you have been, well, I lived in Korea in the early years, right after the war. And it was a massive refugee camp. 
people were living in hovels on the street. There was hardly a, hardly a building standing. And those that were, were hollowed out from fires and bombs and this kind of thing. And so uh, there were no paper products, none, except toilet paper. <laughs> and it was not top of the line. <laughs> we laughed because it, it was on the roll, and when you would take it to, to try and tear it, it wouldn't tear, but stretched. It was like, was like very cheap crepe paper. And so that was an experience to adjust to. And then there was even that. They, there was a rumor that there wasn't going to be any more. They weren't going to be able to make any more. The trees had been bombed off or burned, or people had burned to, to cook with. So there were no trees left. It was just denuded ground. And they said there was not going to be any more toilet paper, and they weren't going to import any. So I don't know about the Korean families and households, what the discussions were there, but I remember the night that we heard the news and we went in our Jeep. There were no paved streets, and that would have been bombed out. Just two, two blocks of paved street in the city. So we, we went out to get... Uh, just a few extra rolls, of course. <laughs> and when we got to this little shop, well, stand on the side of the road where they did have it, it was one of the few places that did, our neighbors, who were really good, for, I mean, another mission family, were there with their little son, who was David and Jonathan, so my son. Uh, so he shouted out, Uncle Clyde, did you buy it all? We really need it at our house. <laughs> That's a little bit of the condition that we had in, in those days in relation to paper. But I want to tell you, the, the china that I have is, is lovely, what I use at home. But everything I have, I realize, has been given to me. The china and things that are fancy and decorative. And so when we didn't have any paper items in Korea, I had some of that with me. And I want you to know that paper is okay. In fact, we were, if anybody ever came and brought us paper napkins or paper plates, we thought that was really luxury. So when we set a table with paper cups, <laughs> paper plates, this, people would go to the kitchen and wipe them off to be used again. <laughs> so you can't really win. But you can set, you can, you know, you don't have to have enough china to have people in. You don't have to have. There you go. There you go. I will try to really remember this. But I talk with my hands and I tend to wander. Um, this is a, a dollar, goblets, plastic. I put powdered sugar in there and then one of those little candles that, you know, just comes in a hundred for a dollar or something. So you don't have to spend a lot of money to open your heart and your home to friends. And um, you don't even have to have fancy paper plates. Most people just want the fellowship. They want, if, if the truth were known, most of the people who come into your home really want Jesus. And it doesn't, you know, you can, you can be as fancy as you want, you can be as plain as you want. You can tell everybody, just wear blue jeans, let's have pizza. It's your heart reaching out to them that matters. And um, when I, I did have the privilege of getting to know a very good friend. She became a very good friend um, in Korea. When the Olympics were there in 1988, um, of course, by that time, Korea had progressed quite a bit. And, um, uh, we, they, were, they brought in tennis players to train the Korean Olympic team, and they had a big reception for them, and they had them, we were sitting outside, and they, they had them playing, and I was so happy to have an afternoon, a beautiful afternoon, out of the hospital and away from the university classroom, and, and be able to just relax and watch and see a few Americans playing tennis along with the, with the Koreans. And Billy Kim, again, came up to me and said, Betty, have you met Mrs. No yet? And I said, no, I haven't. And she, at that time, was the wife of the head of the Olympics, so she was there. And he said, well, um, it would be good if you would get to know her, because she's probably going to be the next president's wife. Her, her husband's probably going to go from being head of the Olympics to being president of Korea. So 
he left, and then there was an empty seat by her. So I went down and introduced myself, a lovely woman. And she spoke English uh, very well, actually. Um, and she said to me, I am so glad to meet you. I need an English teacher. The one who was teaching me had to go back to England, and um, I, I need someone to teach English. And I said, well, and she said, could you do that? I said, well, I'm not an English teacher, but I could find one for you. You know, <laughs> here am I send somebody else. But um, <laughs> then they called, her, they called her to play doubles tennis with her husband. And so I was, went back to where I had been. Billy came over and he said, oh, how did it go with Mrs. No? And I said, really well, she's lovely. And, and I said, she wanted me to teach her English, but I told her I'd find a teacher for her. I mean, I was teaching in a university, I could, and I do speak English of a kind, not like Fiona, but um, <laughs> I worked on it. <laughs> so anyway, he did everything that he could and still be dignified, but stamp his feet and shake me. He said, Betty, she's a Buddhist. She has asked you know, you to teach her, and you need to do that. Don't find somebody else. So when she came back from playing tennis, I went back to her again, and I said, if you still need an English teacher, I've just learned how. <laughs> Actually, that's what I told her. And she smiled, and she said, yes, I would love that. And could I come to your home, or could you come to my home? Um, a couple of times a week. And we settled on one time because I had to change my schedule quite a bit at the university. And that began an opportunity to, I'll never forget when she walked into my home the first time, she said, this is like heaven. And it was, a, it was in those days a very, very ordinary home we had some bamboo furniture imported from Japan. There was nothing in Korea at that time. There was nothing. Everything had been destroyed. And I was uh, in the early years, so we gradually did develop. But one thing I insisted on, because there was no color, the trees were gone, it was bare, and um, uh, everybody had brown furniture. I'm not a, really a brown person, it's okay for those of you, uh, so it's fine, but I like blue. And so I had had the walls, and they were cinder block walls, nothing insulated, just a cinder block wall, and we had that painted blue, of course. And um, that's why I guess it reminded her of heaven. But um, I'll never forget the day. She came every, for years, we became very, well, I want to tell you, she said, I said, now what do you, what kind of vocabulary do you need to learn? What do you, how do you use your English? And she said, well, when other dignitaries come, I take their wives and I show them the country, I share about our culture, um, and she named different things that she did. So I spent a week working on this new <coughs> lecture for the president, the future president's wife. And, um, Actually, by the time we really got started, he was president, and uh, so she came. My phone was tapped. They came. She came with a security guard. They checked my house out. He, he brought her, stayed by the door every time she came. Things were pretty tense in Korea, South Korea at those times. So anyway, I prepared, and then at the end, she said, oh, this was very interesting, but it's not what I need. I said, well, tell me again a little bit. She told me. I worked another week on this, one hour, two hours with her. And we had a wonderful time. She came, and we had refreshments of course, <coughs> as each time she came. And she said, oh, this was very interesting. But it's not what I want, what I need. And I said, you know, I really thought, I've got to find out what she needs. And so I said, what do you need? And she said, would you be my friend? And so that began a wonderful opportunity to share with her what it means. Without using always the name of Jesus, she knew, um, we, we talked just about things that mothers and wives talk about, about the, the things that were going on in the country. And to make a long story short, a long, beautiful story short, 
Mrs. Kim is today a, a radiant Christian. She became a Christian uh, slowly, but um, there came the day when she really began her journey with the Lord, and so did her husband as well. Um, my husband had given him a Bible, and he said, I will read this after, when I finish being president, or I, I will, I will uh, receive Jesus after I'm president. If I do it now, they'll think it's political. But he did do that, and uh, fortunately, he stopped being president so that he could be a Christian. <laughs> um, that's, that was the Korea that I was in. But um, I just want to encourage you that sometimes even the people who seem to have everything don't, if they don't have Jesus. Even if they do have Jesus, they need the encouragement of Christian fellowship and friendship. And so that's, that's why we do things um, like teas. Um, my first introduction to a tea my mother loved teas, and she would have maybe a hundred people in for teas, and uh, at Christmas time. So we had to. She always told my dad when we go out to cut down the Christmas tree, it has to be small, because I have all these women coming for tea, and we never listened to that, of course. So, but it was it was a time when she was able to share her faith with many doctors' wives and people that were in their community, and and. My mother was a radiant witness to uh, walk a prayer warrior, a walk with Jesus. One day, uh, I went with her to my aunt's home. It was a meeting of the sisterhood. This was my mother had five brothers and and one sister and one half sister and two sisters. Let's say it. <laughs> and uh, they got together once a month. So she said I could. Um, go with her one day when we had a holiday from school and we were going to have tea with them but we first went to see her older sister and visit with her before we went to gather with all the others and the, my, my aunt was taking care of her little toddler little granddaughter and we were she wanted to have tea because she knew we were going to have it so she had this little tea set and, and a, a little little tiny teapot and so she handed us each one and my, my aunt never stopped talking. I mean you could you could answer her question but she was already on to the next thing. And she's delightful, she was loving and but we knew that she would just always be talking. And so she was. And the little girl was the little toddler was serving us tea over and over and over again. And my aunt never stopped talking. So we were just drinking it, filling up, drinking it. And then she suddenly had a pause. My aunt. She said, she can't reach the faucet. <laughs> she followed her, and sure enough, Happy tea parties, ladies. <laughs> Enough. <laughs> so if you want to have a tea party, don't have your toddler serving it. <laughs> Come with me to Korea. We all love grandmothers. And uh, uh, when, when the, well, we all, we all waited for, for Russia to open. We, well, some of you are young enough, maybe you weren't worried about Russia, but we were for many years. And then when, um, the, when Gorbachev, uh, when, when, I forget, this is picking me up. Well, we, when the, the commission was established and we were able to go into Russia, we established a commission that was 83 organizations working together and taking our flags down, denominational, organizational, and putting up the flag of Jesus. And we had teams that went in, you know, a couple hundred, 300 at the time, for six months, well, we went for a year, but we put new groups in every six months, so they kept overlapping. With training, short training, uh, learning to just say a few words in Russian, and they worked with interpreters. I have to go through these stories quickly, but. Uh, there, there was a team in Stavropol. Stavropol is the area, very political. It's where Gorbachev, there's a university there, Gorbachev lived there. And 
there was a, the, the university was really a hotbed of politics. And so we had a team there and they had all their materials that were, the Bibles were interpreted and, and were translated into Russian. We had those and Jesus film in Russian so that the, the team didn't have to speak Russian in order to have a ministry. But they had, they had interpreters, as many as we could get. But in those days, it was very, almost rare to find anyone who was a believer because Russia had, was just coming out of 70 years of darkness. And so they, the interpreters would sit in on a prayer meeting or a team meeting, but they didn't really understand all that was going on. But this one day, they were all concerned. They had used up all of the Russian and English Bibles and didn't have any more of the materials that Jesus films in, in Russia to give out. And it was winter, it was one of the worst winters they had had, and so there was road traffic between Stavropol and, and uh, Moscow, was impossible. Even the trains were blocked by snowdrifts, and, and they were just praying, how, how can we keep our ministry going and not have these materials? And when they finished praying and talking, the interpreter said, if you're looking for Bibles, when in the years, you know, just a few years ago or a year ago, um, it would, we became aware that the Bibles that had been carried out, dug up out of the basements or they were hidden in the roofs and the, the, the KGB would come in and, and tear the house apart to find Bibles of anybody that was suspected of even having any church affiliation, which the churches were all closed. They, they even took the clappers out of the bells so the bells couldn't ring. For many, for all those years. So anyway, he said, "There's that big fortress with a wall around it and armed guards, and I have heard that there are Bibles stored in that huge building." So he said, "Why don't you? Why don't we just go and ask for them?" So <laughs> he said, "I will go. If someone will go with me, I will go and interpret for you. I think you should just go and ask for these for for some of the Bibles." So they went to prayer and they decided, well. We should follow through on this. And they went, then the next or that day, they went with the interpreter, and the team stayed back and prayed, and the team leader went. They went up to the guard and introduced themselves and said, um, we have heard that there are Bibles stored in here. And the armed guard looked at them and said, yes, there are. And <laughs> Rather haltingly, the team leader said through interpretation, do you think we could come and get some? And he said, if you will come when I am on duty, and he told them when he would be, you may take as many as you want. And he said, you can bring a truck, and you can bring helpers to help you carry them. He said, there are a lot. I don't know whether under his army helmet, there was a halo, <laughs> but certainly there was something going on that was not usual. And so the next day, they, they had a, a Bible class among students at the university, and they thought, oh, we'll get some of these strong guys to go and help us carry out the Bibles. So they did, and they had a, they had a couple of Land Rovers that they could use and some part of the truck, and they made the caravan out. And on the way, one of the university students said, he was so outspoken that everybody was just kind of cringing a little bit. He said, I don't know why we're going to, what, what's all the fuss about these Bibles? He said, I don't believe there's a God. Why would there be a Bible? And he said, I'm just going for the money, because we were giving them a little bit of money to do this. And uh, so to make another long story short, uh, they went into this building. The guard was there, let them in, still had his gun, and he was watching them very closely, but uh, they went in, and it was like a library, just stacks of, of Bibles everywhere. And they began to get arms loads of them. And after a little bit, they noticed that no one could see where he had gone, this one guy. They didn't see him carrying them out. And so the team leader with the interpreter went to look for him. And of course, the Bibles were in stacks, not really bookshelves, but stacks high. And uh, they finally found him in a corner way, way back in the warehouse. And he was sitting on the floor in his parka and uh, had the Bible on his lap. And he was crying. And when they talked up to ask him what the problem was, he opened the Bible and he said, 
I decided there were so many, it wouldn't matter if I just stuck one in my coat. You all seem so happy about it. I wanted to see what, what it was all about. So I was going to hide it in my parka and take one home to the university. And he said, but I opened it up. And in the front, there was a note. And that note was written by his grandmother. And it was a prayer that he would come to know Jesus. When God has a reason to work down generationally and to carry, carry the answer to a grandmother's prayers, he knows how to do it. That's what Jesus does. You know, the Bible is filled with stories. And these are not just stories that show us what Jesus did. These are stories that show us what Jesus does. And the stories that I want to share with you tonight are what Jesus does, how he continues doing. The, the Bible, sometimes we, we think of it as past tense, but it's not. It's what Jesus continues to do and what he will do in answer to our prayers. Um, um, there's another story that I want to tell you. I have to step away from this I will stop talking. This is another cup from Russia. Now, my boys call it Star Wars cup. And uh, the grandchildren, I have two of these, and they, this is their first choice for hot chocolate. <laughs> and it looks very Russian. But this, this story is about a Russian physicist who actually was put in prison um, because they thought he was a spy. One of our commissioners, uh, the first, the second day after she got, or first day after she got into Russia, the team went in, and they knew very, very little English. But she had a letter that she'd written to tell about her arrival in Russia, back to her family, wanting to mail it. She came down out of the flat, the apartment building, snow, ice everywhere, but she remembered seeing a mailbox. And she thought, well, I've, I've got to mail this letter. So she slipped and slid, slipped and slid over. <laughs> to the mailbox, and when she got to where the mailbox was, it turned out it was two. And she, which one do I put it in? Will, I get, will it get anywhere? And so she was standing there wondering, and a Russian um, grandmother uh, was walking down the walk, and about as far as from here to you as a table, she stopped and went, oh, yes. <laughs> she was really surprised. <laughs> She, she just stood there for a minute, and then she rushed over to our commissioner, who was an old woman herself, actually. She was one of the oldest ones who went. was in her 70s. Young, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, so she came over, and they started talking to each other. One in Russian, one in English. And you know what you do when you don't understand the language? You use your arms, you get louder, you shout, and you use facial expressions. And so all that was going on. And suddenly, miraculously, they realized they were both speaking German. <laughs> they both could speak German and understand it. And so they carried on in this conversation. And the, the Russian grandmother said, you may wonder what how I, why I, I acted the way I did. She said, for 10 years, I have been asking if there is a God. I didn't know if I was praying to God or not, but I told him, if he is a God, I wanted to know if there is a God. Because, you know, she's lived in the dark years. No God, no God, no church. And she said, when I saw you, a voice said to me, she will tell you who I am. That commissioner had been there two days, or well, one and a half days, and here was someone coming who had been searching for the one she came to proclaim in within, well, within 48 hours. And so she invited, the, the Russian invited her to her flat, and they sat there and talked about Jesus. And that Russian woman had been waiting 10 years so it didn't take long for her to say, yes. We didn't need any interpretation on that one. She was ready, and she did find the Lord. And then she said, this 
in her 70s or, or more, grandmother, said, now we have to go tell my father. <laughs> Found out that her father was 102 years old. He was a very famous physicist. As I said, they thought he was a spy, so he'd been put in prison. And it was very, very rugged time, and he was, at that point, already old. And so he became ill. And they put him, they thought he had died, so he was thrown on the dead body pile, which they had in the prison. And a night guard happened to shine his light at just the right time when his foot twitched. So they pulled him out of the pile, took him to whatever room they had for people in that condition, and he recovered. But then he became ill again, and he was thrown again on the dead body pile. And this time it was deeper. It was a real miracle when his hand happened to move and another guard saw him one afternoon and pulled him back again. And then when the things changed when Gorbachev freed many of those political prisoners, he was released. And they, he was so brilliant that they hired him again to go into the universities, into the research center, to be the, physis the physicist and the nuclear physicist that he was. And he was teaching then. So she said, he's a very busy man, this man of 102, and so we'll have to make an appointment, but um, they, they wanted him to see, by this time, this was a week or so after we had films, the Jesus film. She said he has to see it. So they called him, got in touch with him, and he said, well, how long is it? And it was long. And he said, well, I'll come and see half of it. So those of you who have seen the Jesus film, it's, it's the life of Jesus according to the Gospel of Luke. Very clear, beautiful, marvelous story, and used effectively in, in Russia. So they made an appointment for him to come and watch the first half of the Jesus film. Here he came, and he watched. And those of you who have seen the Jesus film know that um, when you get to the part of the crucifixion, it, it, just, it just brought him forward in his chair and just sat there totally, totally engrossed in who Jesus really is and what he has done. And he put his head in his hands and wept like a baby and said, there is a God and his name is Jesus and I want to know him too. It, he was ready. In those years, there were so many people who had gone through the darkness, gone through the, the persecution, gone through all kinds of uh, political unrest and they were longing for something that they had been told, did, someone that they were, had been told did not exist. And here he was. And so he lived for a few more months, and when he turned 103, he really died this time. But he went to an eternal life with Christ. So that is our old people's story. <laughs> um, I know I don't have time for all the stories, so I'm trying to decide which ones to leave out. Um, in the, the early years of, of Korea, Korea, the Christianity in Korea was really um, born on the blood of martyrs. It was illegal for foreigners of any kind to come in, and the first Christians came in through the sewer pipes from the harbor of the city down into under the gates, it was a walled city, so the capital was Hanmanjong, which had been the other capital, which is now in North Korea. So you had to come in, if you were not a Korean, you had to come in some other way. The only way was the sewer pipes under the, the, the water system. And the first missionaries, um, the first Protestant missionaries came in that way and arrived on Easter Sunday, that's part of the history, but um, that's, but before, I mean, after that time, many of them had been beheaded um, or, or persecuted in some way, killed or in prison. But um, then the Japanese, um, later the Japanese occupied uh, Korea for 45 years. 
and the Japanese forced the, the Christians to either be in prison, they killed them, or they tortured them to, to change their faith. And in one particular town, village, um, south of, of the capital of Seoul, the, the police of the Japanese occupied all the villages. And they had come in and um, told to close the church. It had been closed for several years. And they came in on a Sunday. The soldiers went to every house with their, with their guns and their machete things that were on their guns and said, we're, we're going to open the church for you. Come to the church. Everybody, come to the church. We're going to open the church doors. So the church was packed. In those days, they sat on the floor, the women and children on one side, the men on the other. And this was a picture inside that church, packed with people. And they didn't have glass windows. They had shutters. Um, and the, of course, the, the building was uh, thatch and clay, and but mainly thatch. And so they were gathered there, and the women and children were, were talking. Everyone's excited. And they left, of course, there's an aisle where the pastor could come in. But um, all of a sudden, they heard the heavy boots and the stomping of two Japanese soldiers who came in with their, with their guns. And they went to the back of the church, and, or the front of the church, excuse me, and said, uh, we are glad that you all came. And we, are, uh, we want to give you uh, hope. We want to tell you some good news. If you will denounce your faith in Jesus, these were all believers that were in the church. You will denounce your faith in Jesus. You are free to go. And well, I'm giving you another picture. In Korea, you know, in those days, you didn't wear your shoes. They wore rubber shoes, but you took them off at the door, and then went in. So all these hundreds of pair, hundred pair of shoes was at the door. They were sitting, um, stock-footed, and um, nobody moved. And the soldiers said, I think you don't understand. We said, if you will denounce your faith, you may walk freely out of this church. But if not, you can turn and look out. There were openings in the wall where they had the shutters open. We are going to burn this church down and um, you will not be able to go before that. And they looked down and sure enough, here were uh, a dozen soldiers out there with torches and bringing bales of straw and hay to pile up around the church and waiting for the order to, do, to light them. And they repeated the, the statement, the threat, over and over and no one moved. And they began, smoke began to come in the windows. The flames began to lick at the, 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 the bales of hay outside. And one grandmother voice began, when I survey the wondrous cross, in Korean, of course, on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, or content to all my pride, you know the words to the verses, and they continued to sing. The men joined in, and soon everyone, every adult, was singing. And then they, they stood up, and the children were clinging to their mother's skirts. They knew what was happening, and there was coughing and choking. And, but no one went to the door. No one went to get their shoes and leave until every voice was snuffed out, and they were burned alive in that church. But I'm, this cup I brought, this cup was uh, made in Korea to celebrate the 100th year of the Korean church, um, which was some time ago now. But uh, it's a testimony to me that you can burn down a church and you can burn down a congregation, burn up a congregation, but you cannot destroy God's church. And so this was a very special um, cup to me, even though the church has had many more uh, celebrations. It's just as a, a, a sign, another clear testimony that um, when you have believers like those Korean believers, they are going to stand and God's church will 
continue. Um, I had a, a meeting uh, in North Carolina, actually. It was a group of, of women from several different churches who decided one year that they were going to um, reach out to all the, the nationals from other countries. And they were, there were many in the area um, of their tri-cities who were from other countries, and they were inviting them to be friends. They were people that did their nails, did their dry cleaning, did their hair, all of these women. They, one by one, they took them on one by one, and made friends, and they would take them out to lunch, they would take them to their homes. They could not take them to church, they, they couldn't invite them there. But for a year, they developed friendships, intentionally. And then they asked me, they knew that I had these teacups and I could talk about with these women without being a threat. So they, we had a, a tea and a, one of the women, women had a gorgeous big home and they planned a whole day. Um, this was the first time that these women were going to be confronted really with Jesus except as they had seen and heard just some conversations and watched the lifestyle of the women who were befriending them. And so um, they, they had it set up, the women came in, they had coffee and a muffin and that I shared um, with the women, we had a break, and then they all gathered around, and some of them, and there were 15 nations represented, and uh, there was a, a gal from uh, Mexico, and with the, the interesting thing was I had been in every country that was represented there, and that was exciting, because I could talk to them as we were having coffee, and, and God is so good. His networking is so beautiful in the way he opens doors and opens hearts. But as close to me again as these tables right here, there was a woman in a burqa. They, they wore their national dress, and there was a beautiful Mexican dress, one somebody from Brazil, Colombia, um, and this woman was from Iraq. And uh, I could, it was a tight burqa where I could only see her eyes, just her eyes. And she had a little girl by her side who was just, just sitting there or holding onto her mother's arm. And uh, she reached, when I began to share some of the story, um, which I will share that story again for you later, but she reached in, in under her robe and pulled out a pencil, and she began to write as I shared a story. Um, before that, one of, it was just a gorgeous young woman from Africa, gorgeous, tall, stately, in, in an African dress, and uh, radiant, really radiant. Um, and then there was another woman who sang from South America, just different ones, did different things, and as, as in between the stories. And, um, but the woman, when I began to share, um, when, I, when I really began to share the story, I'll have to. I'll, you can see. I began to share the story about the best cup. And I began to talk about the chalice and Gethsemane and Calvary. And I don't, I don't think that the woman in the burqa, or any of the others, but I was especially watching this woman because all I could see were eyes, and they were so expressive. And as I shared about Calvary, who Jesus was, and what he had done, I invite you to um, come to Calvary with me as I was taking the women there that day many of them for the first time to hear that story, but um, let us go to Calvary and linger for a moment. Rub a finger on the rough timber of that cross and even press in your imagination, press a nail into the palm of your hand. Feel the gash of a thorn on your forehead. They were long and sharp. You could touch the dirt, fresh with the blood of our Savior, the blood of the Son of God, 
Let the tools of torture tell their story. Listen as they tell you what God did to win our hearts. He hung there. Darkness fell like an unexpected sentence on the world, thick and terrifying. And amid this sudden night, Jesus tumbled violently as if in the epicenter of an unfathomable storm, wrenched apart by a planet careening out of control. We live in one like that right now. It was a long and costly ordeal that Jesus threw himself into. Every sin of every generation. I hope you'll take that word to your heart. Every sin of every generation he carried to the cross. We think of the evil that's going on in our world today. We think of, of the evil in the inner cities. Every sin of every inner city ever in history or future was covered when Jesus went to Calvary. Troops, guerrilla troops, gloating over the captives they had skinned alive. Machine gunning women, children who ran from burning synagogues with clothes ablaze, child molesters, child abusers, sexual problems all over our world. Victims testifying over and over again. Pharaohs sacrificing thousands of faceless laborers to build themselves a deifying tomb. We know that in North Korea, Jamie and I spent some time there, just a week, a long week. They have starved thousands and thousands, millions of their own people to death, especially the babies. Babies there, except the ones that live in the capital city, which is, you have to have permission, but babies there are just thin, blue skin over skeletons. Dozens of them on the floors in orphanages all over North Korea. But he was tossed about in an endless storm of enraged fathers beating toddlers to death. We read about that all too often. It fell on him in unspeakable violence, seeing pimp-seducing teen runaways into lives of drugs and prostitution, the homeless in every one of our cities in this country, let alone all the others, the refugees, homeless, without anything, many of them, fleeing for their lives. He carried the burden for them on that cross that day. Impoverished parents in China selling their daughters into slavery. Child molesters making sure their victims would never testify against them. And then this is sad. Bible-believing elders praying long and loud while their wives sit in the back pews hoping heavy makeup covers up the abuse and the bruises. On and on it goes. A storm of titanic currents ranging between heaven and, and earth. Jesus tumbles alone amid embezzlers, gangsters, bullies, rapists, liars, the indifferent, the sadistic, the self-righteous. It's a scene of unbearable horror and unspeakable madness. He is the accused for us all, bearing the weight of abused children scarred for life, families destroyed by adultery or apathy, civilizations decaying, wars ravaging, victims, victims, always victims, numberless and their anguished voices all focus on this one man, tumbling in the storm, exposed, vulnerable to it all, wasted lives, heartache, monstrous atrocities, petty transgressions, humanity dumps its wreckage on this one spot. And today it's rampant, it's a global epidemic of evil, sin on the march. Yet through it all, deep in the horror of hell, he keeps his eyes wide open. He's not a bystander caught in an accident. He has come to this epicenter deliberately. He will accept it all, absorbing the full force of this storm of wrath in his body and mind and heart and soul until there is nothing left to feel. Jesus did not go gently 
into the night. His virtue, his integrity, and purity, and life were ripped from his hands, bit by shredded bit. Jesus' heart was torn apart with anguish for you and for me. Finally, the tumbling slows a bit, the storm slackens. Jesus lifts himself on his nailed feet to snatch a gasp of air and forces his swollen tongue to shout. It is finished. I've come. I've seen. I've felt. I've conquered. Can you hear him whisper, I did it for you? That day, as I shared, um, there were tears in the two eyes that were peering through the burqa. And we went outside for lunch, and uh, they had said that I would sit at a table where if anyone wanted to come and talk, they could. And um, several did at first very quickly. And then this cup, this, this cup represents the beautiful, tall, stately, bronzed African woman, young woman, who came and she stood up and I stood up and looked at her beautiful face and it was streaked with tears and she said because I had said that his blood cleansed purified our hearts and the Holy Spirit we had talked about the whole picture and she wept and she said don't ever ever not tell the part about the purity, the purifying of Jesus' blood. She said, I was one of the lost girls in Africa, and I ran through the jungles in the, in the nighttime, or daytime, we, we, we hid. And at night we would run through the jungles because the, the guerrillas, the soldiers would, would catch us. And they would rape us over and over again, and then they'd just leave us for dead. And we would run to the next jungle or the next hiding place. Over and over again, we were caught. And she said, I, I thought I would never survive. The pain, the shame was so great. And she said, then I did hear about this Jesus and the cross. And so she said, when I came to when I came to America, I was rescued by the groups that do rescue these lost girls. And she said, when I came to America, I heard about Jesus, and I knew it was forgiven. I knelt at an altar, and I knew it was forgiven. But not until today, when you talk about the purifying blood of Jesus, did I know? Did I know that I was pure? Can you imagine the power that that was in her life? So don't ever, ever, ever forget that he purifies us. His Holy Spirit comes, and we are pure once again or again for the first time. Um, do I have time for one more story? This is a story that I really feel I need to tell um, the burqa woman, I mean, the, the woman in the burqa, uh, had been uh, brought to the States when her husband was working on a master's degree, and then they went back uh, to uh, their, their country, and then he wanted to come back for a P PhD, and so he brought her and their little girl, and uh, the first day they were in, in America, he said he had to go to the university and that they could go to the shops. He took her to a mall on a corner. He said, I'll meet you here at 5 o'clock this evening and we'll go home. And so at 5 o'clock, she was there on the corner. At 10 o'clock, she was still on the corner and he never did come back for her. But she had been taken in. Um, someone heard her story and took her to a church and one of the families in the church had taken her in and she is learning about what, at that time, she was learning about Jesus, and she has come to know him. Mm -hmm. And uh, 
God works in mysterious ways, but I had uh, one of the Bible studies that I had in, in uh, Korea. I, I had them in the in the university and with the nurses and uh, students and um, some with Korean fam women. But I had one on the base, the army military base, and. Uh, it was a very interesting group. Their husbands were, they really were almost like prisoners on the base. It was not safe for them to go off the base very often. But um, we had this Bible study where I came onto the base and uh, one of the women, uh, I'm not gonna introduce you to all of them, but one of the women was so attractive that when she would walk in the door for Bible study, it was like everyone was saying, I'd like to walk in her shoes. I'd like to be like her. She was charming, delightful, and uh, just entered in with all of her heart, as they all did with the Bible study. And uh, at the end, we would always have prayer time. Um, one day, she came in very late, which was totally unusual for her. And we looked, at, I, was, I was teaching, and I didn't want to call attention to her because I looked up and it, her hair was just a mess, beautiful blonde hair, just a mess. She had. Well, she looked like she'd been crying all night. <coughs> Bruises on her face, on her arms, and she just was totally battered. And she said, so then I quickly brought, came to the prayer time so that we could minister to her. And uh, she spoke up quickly and said, her, na her name was Samantha. We called her Sam. Her husband's name was Randy. So Randy is the he, Sam is the she. And she said, I haven't been honest with you. Um, Randy is, was one of the top officers in the US military. And she said he could not stand for me to ever read my Bible. If he ever found me praying, kneeling and praying, he would kick me. Um, he has torn up so many Bibles. So this morning when I was getting ready to come, she said he always was upset if he knew I had come to Bible study. And she said, when I go to the chapel on Sunday, it's just a, a battle. And he's angry, really angry, and physically abusive. And so she said this morning, it was just too much for him to even think about my coming. So before he left for the base, or to, for his work, they lived on the base, um, he had really attacked her. So she said, I waited till he left, and then I just couldn't stay any longer without coming to tell you. And so we prayed with her, of course. And uh, then you may be wondering about this. We prayed and we said, we think you should not come to Bible study. We will pray for you. And we will uphold you every way we can. But we think you should stop going to the chapel. And that you should ask the Lord. We will join you in this prayer to let his love flow through you to your husband. And she looked surprised, but she said, I will try. I will do anything to preserve this marriage and for my husband to come to know the Lord. So she did. And uh, no one in the world was ever more shocked, I don't think, than her husband. When he would say something to her, she'd say, well, I'm not going to the chapel. Or what would you like to do today on Sunday? And, and uh, she, she just was in complete submission to him without doing anything that she knew was, would not be pleasing to the Lord. Some months, uh, several months went by, and then one day she came in shining, and she said, guess what? Randy's going on R&R. &R. He was going to Okinawa for two or 10 days of rest. Those of you in the military know what that is, R&R. &R. So he's leaving Korea, and she said he's had these before, but he's never, ever asked me to go with him. And she said he wants me to go. And uh, so they did. They, they were, well, they were preparing to go. And she said, the problem is we have these two little boys, little, and uh, our next-door neighbors, who always took care of them for us, we were good friends, moved uh, two weeks ago. We don't have them to take care of the boys. Being the Christian women that we were, we said we'd pray about that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, anyway, then uh, we, we did uh, 
agree that it was wonderful. We would pray about it, and uh, that she would find someone. And then I, when we finished, she went home, and all the rest of us went home. And I, I drove the hour home, or 45 minutes. And when I went in, the phone was ringing, and it, it was Sam. And she said, Betty, you will never believe what happened. When I got home, there was a moving van next door, and this gal, who was just a radiant Christian, came out and said, I've had the best time with your two little boys. She said, my husband and I don't have any children, but we would be happy to just be part of your family. Your little boys are so great. Well, of course, she didn't ask her right away. <laughs> but um, that developed in, in time for uh, Randy and Sam to be able to leave their boys with this couple and go to Okinawa. They had been there for uh, five days, and uh, it came Easter Sunday. <coughs> they woke up, and uh, Randy said, well, um, you're going to go to chapel? And she said, oh, I'll do whatever you want. He said, well, don't you want to go to chapel? She said, I'll do what you want. He said, Sam, it's Easter. And she said, yes, I know. I'll do what you want. He said, Sam, everybody goes to chapel on Easter. <laughs> and she said, oh, all right. Well, we better go then. We'll go. So they did. They got ready to go. And they walked in the back of the chapel. And uh, she thought, well, I'll let him lead the way. And he'll sit on the back row, I know. But he didn't. Didn't stop there. She thought, well, halfway down, I guess, is our limit. And she followed him, and he went more than halfway down. He let her go in. He was sitting on the aisle, and she said, I lost all sight of him. It was so wonderful to hear the hymns and, and then the prayer, and the chaplain could not have been better. She said, I was just like the desert with a new spring rain. And she said, I just felt like every cell in my body was responding to this, and I was totally almost forgetting that Sam, uh, Randy was there. And then at the end, the chaplain kind of stepped down a bit and he said, I'm going to do something different today. I'm, I'm going to, uh, you know how at Christmas time I have a candle and I light it and it goes all throughout the chapel? He said, I'm going to come down, I'm going to shake someone's hand, and I'm going to say, Jesus is alive. And you respond, he is risen indeed. And so that, he began to walk. And they thought, she thought he'd go to the front like he did with the candle. He didn't. And he was walking down slowly, just walking into the chapel through the first row, the second row, and the third row. And she said, my heart began to beat so fast. And I, she said, I prayed, Lord, don't let him come here. She said, that may sound strange to you, but I had a history of abuse, and I had no idea what would happen. And then she said, I realized, she said, I was looking down. I was gripping, white knuckle gripping the pew in front of me. And she said, I could just see, out of the corner of my eye, he was coming toward us. And she said, I saw his hand come to Randy. And all I could think of was, as, hand, as I felt Randy's arm coming forward, Jesus, don't let Randy hit him. And then she said, I saw him reach out as the chaplain reached in, and then I saw his other hand come around. And in a voice that I had never heard in our entire marriage, when that chaplain said, Jesus is alive, or yes, Jesus is risen. I heard this voice, this strange voice from my husband say, I know he is because he has come into my heart this morning. Do you have any impossible people on your prayer list? This is what Jesus does. It didn't end in Bible times. It didn't end with Hitler or Mussolini or any of those who claimed that they could get rid of 
Christ that is never going to end. This is what Jesus does. He brings the life. He answers our prayers. He speaks to us through his word. He is alive and well. This is what Jesus does today. The stories that you read in scripture, many of them are similar to what we can share over and over again. I have a terrible time knowing what ones to share. There are so many of what he does. And he is alive and well in answering your prayers. So rejoice. Thank him again and again for the cost. It was not free. He paid the price for us. But those who are on your list, those who will come and gather in your, around your kitchen table or in your living room or wherever you want to meet are people who, like many of the ones whose stories I have, really don't know how to put it into words, but they are looking for Jesus. And you have the answer. You know him. You can introduce him to even the most impossible ones. So go in rejoicing and know that Jesus does answer prayer. This is what he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Dear Jesus, we just thank you. It's hard to distill into one short time together how great you are, how you are the God of the impossible, and all the prayers that are being offered by women in these around these tables in this room. You have the answer. You are Lord of the impossible. Don't let us give up. Don't let us think there's somebody out of your range. Lord, we praise you. We just praise you for who you are. Break our hearts for the things that break your heart. Help us, give us the courage and the discipline to open not just our homes, but our hearts. No matter what we have to offer them in physical ways, Lord, we have the answer to what they need most of all. Give us the discipline, the love. Give us the love, Lord, to embrace those who desperately need to hear who you are. And we will forever praise you for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, we come to you abandoned to say yes to whatever you ask us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. If you want to learn more about Titus Women, visit us online at tituswomen.org.